Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, this is Steve from BJJ Mental Models. Before we get into today's episode, I have a small production note to share with you. Now, if you listened to last week's episode, you'll recall that we discussed our super cool new recording system. We talk about that as well this week. Now, when you listen to this week's episode, you're probably not going to come away from this thinking that it was recorded on a super cool recording system. Sounds more like it was recorded on a computer microphone. Now, turns out that's exactly what happened. We set up the super Super cool recording system. We got everything going, we recorded, and it wasn't until afterwards that I realized my settings were wrong and this episode was recording off of my computer mic. Now, the good news is the episode is totally listenable. Uh, it's just not the level of sound quality that we would like. Additionally, we had a really awesome chat on jujitsu strategy. I found this to be really insightful. Hope you like it too. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 45. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Brother Mac Kwan. Sure. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach. Matt, it's been a long time since we recorded. Yeah, two hours ago. <laughs> put on a fresh pot of coffee, recording again. Yep, gotta get you guys your content. I don't want to get angry messages if we miss an episode. Plus, we just love the podcast life. And we got these cool new microphones. So. Yeah, we really just want to play with the new microphones. I want to say that it's all funded by you guys, but it's not. Yeah. But you can change that <laughs> by donating to the podcast. We should actually set up a donation page or something. Although, I mean, I know that that donation stuff works, and I know a lot of people make money off of it, but... I don't know. There's just kind of something sad about <laughs> making all your money through donations rather than like yeah. selling goods and services. Yeah, I was I was at a tournament the other day. Actually, it was today, but I'm not. <laughs> By the time this goes live, it will have been another <laughs> it day. It will have been a week from it actually happening. But anyways, a guy came up to me. He said, "Hey, are you Matt Kwan?" I said, "Yeah." And he's like, "Oh, I lo- I get so much out of your podcast that just blew my mind. That first episode. I can't believe you give this stuff away for free." And I thought, yeah. I can't believe it either. <laughs> you can change that though. Yeah. And, and like I told you earlier, what you should have done is just berate him nonstop yeah. and just say, you know, God, you're cheap. I've got two kids. <laughs> yeah, most I'm, t- I'm spending all of this time and money on this podcast and you should be funding it. But honestly, we love it. So. Yeah. Actually, it, it is kind of a feel-good thing. It's awesome to get mail from people telling them that you've helped them. And it, oh, yeah. It's it, so cool. There's kind of a, a bit of a community, too. I mean, we get messages and a lot of the time follow-up messages from people who have tried what we've suggested or they have questions and, you know, we we give them some advice and they come and they report back. And it's, um, it's especially fun because I have no idea what I'm doing. So it's kind of flattering that anyone would listen to me. Matt, cool. Matt knows what he's doing, but I don't. So. Plus, brother Steve and I get to connect on a on – a, jiu-jitsu level 
So, and it gives us an opportunity to go and see the grandparents too. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's good all around and we enjoy doing it, but seriously, please donate money to the show <laughs> or at least buy a t-shirt that helps us out. Yeah. If you could a buy a t-shirt or some patches, that would just be absolutely wonderful. BGGmentalmodels.com slash store. Normally like share, <laughs> like share, do whatever you can to get the word out. Did you say the slogan yet? I think so. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent BJJ approach. There you go. All right. Okay. All right. So today we're, <laughs> today we're going to talk about committed techniques. Now, we've talked about this briefly in the past, but for those who haven't heard this, what I mean by this is the level of commitment that you have to make to any particular technique that you do. Basically, the question is, what is the worst thing that can happen when I do this particular move? Now, when you are new, you tend to throw yourself with abandon into every single technique that you do, regardless of whether it's a good idea or a bad idea, or whether you're doing it safely. And that's because at that point in time, you don't have the context to know what's safe and what's effective. You just kind of, you know, one or two things. And so you try them. Uh, we get a lot of questions about how do we prevent injury? You know, how do I stop getting injured? There's really no good way to answer that question. I mean, you you can't give someone advice that's going to work 100% of the time. Uh, but that said, if I were to try to answer that question, one of the things that I would say is understand the worst case scenario for the moves and the strategies that you're employing. And there's a lot of variables to this. Um, some of it is just common sense. Some of it is size-based. Uh, but generally speaking, when you try a technique, uh, and whether that be a submission or a takedown or a sweep, you kind of need to know two things. Number one is, what is the worst case scenario from a like a match standpoint? Meaning, like, am I going to wind up on the bottom or is this going to be mostly neutral? And the other is, is there a risk of actually getting hurt doing this technique? And if so, how do I mitigate that risk? So common examples of this, probably not a good idea to like triangle a gigantic white belt who doesn't know the slams are illegal. <laughs> You'd be amazed how often I, you know, that can happen where people just throw up this triangle on a big dude and they get stacked. Um, I remember when I was a, a white belt, I mean, I used to try back before I got old and lazy, you know, I remember trying to like double leg a guy who had 60 pounds on me and he sprawled on my neck and that was not a good experience. Yeah, we've so, all done that once. <laughs> yeah. But even going up above and beyond injury, a lot of this just has to do with match strategy. I mean, the, an example that I like to give is if you are on top in turtle or your opponent is in turtle and you want to go for like a head and arm choke, you can go for a Dars or you can go for an Anaconda. And they both kind of seem equivalent. But if you go for a Dars, if you fail, you're probably going to wind up on side control on top of your opponent, right? Like even if you don't get the choke, probably you're going to be able to break his turtle and now you've still advanced the position. So kind of a win-win. But if you go for an anaconda and you fail, you're probably going to wind up on bottom inside control. Now, does that mean you should never do an anaconda choke? Absolutely not. I mean, there's, you know, there's tons of other factors to take into account when you're choosing what to do. But one thing that I always suggest people do, especially if you find you're getting your guard passed a lot or you're giving up top position, not because you're getting swept, but because you're failing at something, um, try to understand what kind of the individual risk level is and the like the pluses and minuses of every single move. And I find a lot of the time people don't teach this stuff, Matt. You know, we you're lucky if your instructor talks about predictable responses. That is so important. And most people don't even talk about that. But 
what a lot of people don't talk about is what is the plan B? Like if you try uh, like an arm bar from guard and you got you get stacked and passed, like did you take that into account? Is that part of your strategy? How does that change depending on what your opponent is doing and how big or strong or fast or weak they are? So uh, that's kind of what we wanted to talk about today. Yeah, if, if you understand the predictable responses of your, your attacks from your opponent, then you'll usually, usually be able to either uh, deal with them before they can even happen. So, for example, if I armbar you and I know that one of your responses, you're going to stack me, I can prevent that by controlling your posture using, you know, my legs chopping down on your head, redirecting your head away from me, or be really good at fixing the situation, maybe by hooking your leg and spinning underneath, you know, and just, just knowing what are the, you know, usually from every attack I do, depending on how I set it up or how I break your alignment, there's going to be a, a, a variety of different responses, usually like four or five different things. So as long as I'm aware of those routes that you're going to take to stay safe, I can think about getting to the next level and, and have the, you know, hopefully get ahead in the sequence and come up on top. Yeah, that's such a big part of it is planning ahead for what your opponent might do and being ready for that before they do it. I mean, again, I'm probably going to give this example about a dozen times this episode, but this comes up a lot when you go for a triangle choke. I mean, if you have um, uh, equivalent or greater strength than your opponent, probably you're going to get away with it. But if you're weaker than your opponent, then it's very hard to get a triangle choke on someone who's bigger or stronger than you. And you really got to make sure that you have it for real. Like if you, if you try to throw up a triangle and you're kind of dangling on top of your opponent, like your opponent has posture and they're postured up and you're kind of dangling on them like a Christmas ornament, like that is not a good triangle joke. Um, and even if your opponent is nice enough to not slam you, they're just going to stack past you, right? You, it's so easy to get out of that position. So a good part of going for these moves, if you are going to go for a technique that has like a high degree of commitment and like something could go wrong, if you can anticipate that out of the gate, then you can prevent it. And like, for example, with triangles, what I do now, rather than just trying to throw my legs up and put like the diamond around their neck and then try to pull them down, I have found that I have to have their posture broken before I I throw up my legs. Like if if you throw up your legs and and you want to break the guy's posture by pulling him down with your core and your legs, you've got to have pretty good core and leg strength. Um, So a lot of the time that can go wrong if your opponent can hold their posture. So what I do is I try to like focus on, okay, can I set up a sweep, like a scissor sweep or something? And if that fails while my opponent is in mid scramble, then I'll throw up the triangle choke. Yeah. Um, And similarly, if I know that they're big and they're strong and I'm concerned about like them doing the bully pass or the, you know, basically smashing you, um, I won't actually fully commit and like lock around their head until I know that I have their posture broken. Like because I know as soon as I go for the triangle, if they still have posture, they're just going to squish me. So, yeah. So basically what I get out of that is a don't roll with big dudes (laughs) and B don't go for attacks or in your, in this specific scenario, we're talking about triangles from the guard don't go for anything unless you've broken broken your partner's alignment. Exactly. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying don't do it on big dudes, although, like, realistically, there are certain moves that are less likely to be effective against big dudes. But I'd actually say train with big dudes because you can't afford to take shortcuts against them. You know, if you are naturally athletically gifted or even just if you're de facto the bigger guy in your gym – you're going to be able to get away with taking a lot of shortcuts. And one day that's going to come back and bite you when you're facing like a top tier opponent or someone who's your own size. So 
if you can, I, it's always favorable to seek out bigger people because you can't afford to take shortcuts against them. I mean, if you want to really learn how not to overcommit to certain techniques, bigger guys will make you pay for that every time. So that's the best place to learn. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> when I roll with the big guys in my school, I know that if they happen to compromise my position and I end up without a guard or, you know, on the other end of the tempo, I know that the the consequences are much more dire than against someone my own size. So I'm always more cautious about managing the distance and trying to avoid getting into bad positions against someone much bigger than me. Yeah, like for me, for example, I mean, I, I kind of had different games that I play, but I find like I'm, I'm trying to work a lot more on like seated guards. The issue that I have is I, I haven't quite figured out how to deal with grips in that situation because you're mostly using your hands. You know, if you're playing a like a more traditional quote unquote open guard, you kind of have your arms and your legs at your disposal. Whereas when you're seated, you're mostly using your hands to fight and your legs are kind of just moving you around. Um, I, I do find, for example, that against bigger guys, for me, because I'm not very good at seated guard, it, it, it's a high risk technique because I know it's going to be easier for them to pass me. So whereas I know that if I try to like snare them and pull them into Delahiva or something, that's pretty low risk. Like I, there's a, there's a very good chance I'm going to be able to tie them up to some degree. Whereas because I'm not great at it, if I go for like in-step shin to shin guard, I might screw it up. So it's just something that you need to be aware of when you're building your strategy. And also uh, technique to technique, depending on what you're, you know, specifically talking about, uh, certain moves I feel require a lot of commitment and other moves are kind of wishy-washy you yeah. can kind of use them to you know to distract your opponent or to just stay busy on the bottom you know during a match so for instance like you know if you're on my closed guard and i'm threatening you with like a cross choke you know i get my cross collar grip and then i start threatening the other hand and I, that doesn't take a lot of commitment from me if if it doesn't go right you know the worst thing that happens is you you're posturing up in my guard and i can pull you back in or i can keep grip fighting you i don't really lose a whole lot but Although I did get punched in the face one time when I went for a cross joke against someone. Yeah. Yeah, I, that sucked. I, I don't blame that person. <laughs> uh, and then take an, take an example, like, I think a lot of standing techniques require a lot of commitment. Yeah. So, like, if you're going for a throw or you're going for a shot, like, there's no way that you can land a successful shot without committing fully to it and driving through your partner. Right? Exactly. So, it's like... You can't just half-ass a shot and expect it to work. I find I find techniques that start standing and then end up on the ground require a lot more commitment, say, than techniques that are, you know, in, like, your closed guard. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Any technique yeah. that requires timing or momentum is probably a technique where you need to fully commit to it. Uh, and this actually, I think, is probably why... A lot of jujitsu guys are kind of just traditionally bad at stand-up is because... We're not explosive. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, we're so used to being kind of very defensive, which is a, one of the core features of the art. You know, we're kind of defensive and we're slow and we're lazy. Whereas when you're doing a stand-up art, whether it be wrestling or judo or whatever, so much of that game is based on timing and it's based on momentum. And, and explosiveness. And explosiveness, yeah. And, and in order to achieve a, a technique that's based on those things, you need to fully commit. Like, if you want to go for a judo throw and you want to, like, half-ass it, or you're, you know, you're only kind of like, you're not really totally into it and you're, you're holding back because you want to preserve the position, 
there's no way you're going to get that throw. It's just not going to happen. And it's to some extent, it's the same for shots and takedowns because it's very, very hard to get something like that if you're not 100% committed to the technique. Uh, so it's interesting because like you you mentioned, Matt, there are different positions require different strategies. If you're like, for example, playing closed guard, you don't need to super commit to any single move most of the time. Um, but yeah, if you are playing, like if you're standing up with someone, or I would say even if you're playing seated guard, you need to have a higher level of commitment than you otherwise would because you can't just ensnare the person with all sorts of crazy grips to the same extent. Yeah, I think I think in that case, when you're in the seated guard or an open guard, your commitment shifts slightly to uh, dominating the grip battle, winning the engagement phase. And then once you grip up, you're committing yourself to give creating Kazushi and creating vulnerability exactly. and, you know, creating some momentum like you talked about. So it's a, a little bit different on the ground, but, you know, all the same things that apply that we talk about, the alignment concepts and and uh, Kazushi and things like that. Exactly, exactly. I mean, the, the human body works the same in all situations, but depending on what you're trying to do, the strategy you might need to employ might be a, a little bit different. So, you talked a bit about the closed guard, Matt, and that's maybe a good example of where you can talk about the different levels of commitment. Uh, the cross collar choke is a great move from closed guard because even if it's honestly not like super high percentage, especially against good guys, it's very low commitment for you unless you get punched in the face, which has happened to me. <laughs> it's very low commitment for you and it forces a reaction out of your opponent. So even if you have no chance of getting that that cross collar choke, if your opponent has really good structure, I sometimes I just like to throw up a cross collar choke that I know I'm never going to get because it forces them to respond and then they have to bring their hands in and that might make it easier for me yeah. to pull them down. Yeah, and and even if you can sell it in the referee's eyes, you might get an you advantage. Might, yeah, if it's convincing enough. Yeah, or in some tournaments they'll even give you a point if you if you threaten a submission depending on the tournament so that you know that's a very valid strategy just to keep your your opponent sort of preoccupied um i think i think nowadays because there's so many ways you can like just quickly see jujitsu techniques and videos like if you go on instagram you'll see you know hundreds of videos so easy to find just random techniques and uh <laughs> when you look at moves that are i don't know how to describe this like let's say <laughs> Well, Fugazi. Yeah, there's someone I want to mention, but I'm not going to mention on the podcast because I don't want to do names. But like they always will show demons. They'll demonstrate moves where, you know, they're in a good position, like the close guard. And then they'll do like, you know, they'll basically like do a suicide choke from there and totally give up position in order to get this move. Uh, That should be a, a red light that this is not a, uh, a technically sound move. Can it work? Yes, it can move, but if you have to compromise your position in order to commit to a technique and give up uh, your alignment and frames and things like that, all just to get a technique, probably not a technique that you really want to invest a lot of time in practicing. Yeah. And to bear, you know, to bear in mind, that's not saying those techniques never, ever work. Like a lot of the time they will. But as you said, the main issue with those techniques is you are so committed. You've if you're going for like a suicide choke from the bottom and you've got guard and you give that up and you let your opponent pass and they, and you fail to choke them, you've basically given up, like you've given up a pass and it's just going to go downhill for you from there. So it's so important to understand before you do these moves, like, yeah, it might work, but you're better off trying to hold an advanced position versus going for like techniques that might actually make you lose position. And that's really the focus of this episode is trying to give you some ideas about how to do that. 
Yeah, I think as you get further through in your journey, you <clears throat> you realize that kind of less is more. I don't know if it's like for my own self-preservation, but I find that I if I can just uh, stay heavy and keep a position, I will do it rather than go for something flashy. Whereas a few years ago, I would like, I'd force myself to do barambolos. I'd force myself to do this position. You'd force yourself to make a DVD about barambolos. <laughs> hey, you know, it's great to know. And it's, yeah. it's to know all those uh, mechanisms and control points. It's really important. But now I don't look for that type of a game anymore. I just use it. If it's there, you take it. Yeah. But otherwise, my style is actually pretty, uh, pretty traditional nowadays, the way that I just try and pass and, you know, hold, hold top mount. You know, I never used to play top mount. And now I'm, I really enjoy it. And I'm just, I'm, I'm trying to actually simplify my game and do less is more, but you'll see like, you know, the white belts and even some blue belts possibly in your Academy that will like, they'll be in guard and then they'll go for like a suicide choke or a baseball bat choke. And then, you know, can that move work? Yes. Like I've been caught with baseball bat jokes for sure. I think, I think everyone has once. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right? The first time it's going to crush you. And then after, but yeah. the thing is you, you develop a sensitivity against these very obvious attacks yeah. at some point. Right. So if, so if the baseball bat choke is your move, like I have seen it work at the black belt level, um, you know, but I don't think that it's a smart move to build your game around and, and to become like one of your main attacks just because you are really compromising your position. I've actually, uh, I've gone for a baseball bat choke, I think when I was uh, a blue belt, and the guy that I was going for the on uh, the choke on was much bigger than me, and I was choking, and then I, I kind of like rolled through, and I could hear him gurgling, and then he actually like kind of mounted me, and I was almost <laughs> belly down. I'm like, okay, I'm just going to keep turning, and then I actually blew my own shoulder out. Oh, man. So that from then on, I'm like, you know what? This move is like... <laughs> the, re the reason I blew my own shoulder out is because as I was twisting the choke, and I was... I could you left your him. arm behind, right? Well, I left my arm behind, but he postured up right as it yeah. happened, and so the, the force of him posturing, plus me trying to crank with my arm, uh, blew my own shoulder out. And I, I was just... It was stupid. I was just looking back at it now, like blatantly ruining my own alignment um you know if only i had someone to teach me alignment back when i was a white belt right mm -hmm. and now and now like the people that train under us steve the the white belts that we teach it's like it's, it's crazy how good like the average white belt is now exactly. like some of the guys that i train with by the time they get their blue belt they're giving me like really competitive roles you know they they know if nothing else they know how to keep their alignment and they know how to keep out of trouble. So even if I can hold position and dominate them on position, like it, it get, it's getting really hard to get good taps on these guys. Yeah. I, I mean, alignment is one, of, I think the quickest way that you can like connect the dots for, for a new grappler and sort of teach them. You're just teaching them how to keep their body in good position is all you're doing, right? Like mm -hmm. they might not know very many moves at all, but they know if they stick their arm out there or if they like, if they're going for a choke and their arms are coming away from their body, you know, and that now they're going belly down. It's like, yeah, you're, you're going to hurt yourself. So, yeah. Yeah. And most of the time when I, I get hurt in the gym, it's because I do it to myself. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, even if you don't hurt yourself doing it, even if you're lucky enough that that doesn't happen, the problem that can happen is you can lose position, right? If you're pulling yourself out of alignment, which means it's going to be easier for your opponent to eventually snag an arm or a leg. Uh, so that's something that you need to be, again, very, very mindful of.
Now, from guard, you know, I being a smaller guy, I, I avoid triangles unless I know there's a good chance I'm going to get them. I don't like to throw, unless I'm having fun, I don't like to try to throw up a triangle against a bigger guy and like seriously expect that I'm going to get it. Um, arm bars, I find, as far as the level of commitment, they can be kind of like, they can go either way. It depends on whether you you can overcommit to the point where your opponent can stack you. Like I, I feel like the problem that some people have with arm bars is they'll start to turn and try to swing and finish before they've broken the guy's alignment. Yeah. Like something I know you do is as soon as you start to lock the arm bar, you just immediately start pushing away on the guy's head. And that helps a lot. Whereas um, some, the mistake some people make is they'll like try to finish before they've actually broken the guy's yes. alignment. And that's when you get stacked past from the armbar. Yeah. And we've talked about it in multiple episodes about armbar mechanics and just like trying to, you know, because because the obvious uh, the obvious finishing detail on first first look is the bridging. Right. And pulling down on the hand. But, but a lot of the time as beginners, we don't think about the role that the legs play on controlling yeah. the head and shoulders. And it's without, far more important than the hands. far more important. Like I, now, now the way I teach arm bars and even leg locks is I, I teach them, you know, finish them with your legs. Mm -hmm. See if you can use your legs to create enough tension at the end of the lever to actually finish the submission. Because that is where you're, you're going to get the best control. You're going to understand, you know, how to break your partner's alignment the most. The hipping in part is kind of the last finishing mechanic that you should be using, in my yeah. opinion. And that's kind of, you know, when you, especially when you're talking about heel hooks and things like that, if you're using the you know, the, the mechanics that involve a lot of horsepower, like bridging with your hips, that's kind of where you're going to hurt a lot of people. So it's more important to think about how are you applying your uh, legs as wedges when you're doing these submissions? Yeah. Yeah. When, when people have trouble finishing like submissions, like arm bars or even the triangle choke, really, it's usually because they're not focusing on fighting using their legs and their core. And this is uh, it's completely understandable. I mean, it, the way that you actually fight in jujitsu, it, it's kind of counterintuitive. Like so much of the power that you get is from your legs and your and your core. You, it kind of feels intuitively like you should be using your hands. But even if you're really big, your arms are not really that strong in the grand scheme of things. I mean, they're the, probably the weakest of, of the weapons that you have other than like your head. <laughs> you know, they're, they're really not a very powerful weapon. Your arms are best suited to holding things in position, you know, using your arms to lock up and secure your opponent's arm or leg. But you're not likely to get good breaking power just by pulling with your arms. Like the way I like to think of it is, you use your arms to secure the limb and then you use your body to apply the pressure. It's, it's like we talked about in the past, how when you are applying a submission, you need to use overwhelming force. Like it's not good enough to just use your hands and pull with those. You want to use all parts of your body that you have available, especially your legs and your core, because even if you are a very small and weak person, your legs and your core are still pretty freaking powerful. Like, you know, your legs hold you up all day. So I don't care how small you are. You're thinking your legs can probably support hundreds of pounds, right? So if you can mm -hmm. effectively use your legs and your core to submit, you're less likely to get into that position, I think, where you go for an arm bar and you just don't have it and your opponent stacks you. Yeah. Like the way that I like to think of it, and this has helped me a lot with arm bars from guard is... As soon as I'm able to catch the arm, like as soon as I'm able to use my arms to grab the person's arm, I immediately elevate my hips and straighten my core. And so then I start fighting with my legs and with my, my feet. So at that point, my arms really, their only purpose is to latch on to my opponent's arm. I'm not trying to pull. I'm not trying to do anything. I'm just holding on to that arm while my legs and my core actually do the fighting.
Yeah, so. same same thing with triangles. That's one of the exactly things that I did when I started using triangles actually just a few years ago because before I was like I would think that my legs weren't really long enough, but I was just doing them incorrectly was yep. the problem. You were trying to like leg curl the guy into you, right? Yeah. yeah. Now when I shoot up a triangle, I try and get my groin like flush with his neck and my hamstring yep. flush to his neck. And then like you said, as soon as I shoot it up, I try to, I try to chop down with my legs so that he carries my weight and engage my, my spine so that I have a straight frame running towards yeah. him. That. And it also helps prevent the stacking as well exactly. as, you're, as you're making your adjustments. I, I don't know if this is like a mental model or something, but it is something I have noticed in every single arm and leg attack, which is as soon as you ca- like latch onto that arm or leg with your arms, immediately straighten your back and drive your hips into the guy. And like that's that's kind of like, it's like a car jack, right? Like once you've latched onto that arm, you use your body to extend so that that limb can never reconnect with the rest of your opponent's body. And then you, again, you fight with the strong parts of your body and not the weak parts. Mm-hmm. Um, so an- another common submission, of course, from the guard, one of my favorites is the omoplata. And in terms of levels of commitment, I love the omoplata because you can put up a real fight. You can put a real threat in front of your opponent with a lot of great sweeping opportunities. And the, the general risk to you is relatively low. Like, it's super unlikely you're going to get stacked or smashed from a failed omoplata attempt. I mean, most of the time, if you fail, you just go back to guard and everything is okay. I mean, it, it's possible that your opponent might like cartwheel over you or something, but you can prepare for that and defend against that. I think the omoplata, if you are a, a defensive fighter like I am, it's a very powerful technique because it doesn't require much commitment at all. You can kind of like basically dip your toes in the water. You can kind of like threaten one and if nothing's there, you can just bail. Um, if you go for it and you're clearly not going to get the omoplata, you can just start rolling and then you'll sweep the guy instead. Like generally with the omoplata, the worst case scenario is just nothing happens. You just wind up back where you started. Um, and even if you fail to submit, you'll probably wind up getting a sweep and getting top position. So I think it's a powerful technique. If you're, if you're a frugal fighter and you don't want to take a risk, it's, it's a technique that I personally find very helpful. Yeah, there's a lot of place, ways to play omoplata. I think uh, one of the best ways is like the Clark Gracie way where you have the re-roll because let's face mm-hmm. it, as soon as you shoot an omoplata over the guy, he's going to roll. roll. Yep. So uh, one of the things that I noticed is actually turning your hips away from your partner. I know a lot of people try and turn their knees in and finish the omoplata right away. But the thing is, is that only works if if your partner's so broken down that they can't roll through. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the time I'll actually sort of encourage them to roll. And one of the ways you can do this is by turning your knees outward, which actually creates an open elbow, and then base on your elbow on the outside. So if, if you don't base on your elbow, then it's really hard to come up and they might step over, like you mentioned the cartwheel. Yeah, yeah. Right? It's basically like they can walk over top of you and end up in like a side control. Yeah. But if you come up to your elbow, then you'll always be able to turn your hips over and end up in the top uh omoplata or captain morgan position as as we call it sometimes right so it's kind of hard to visualize maybe from describing it but basically you're kind of like doing a barrel like a log roll and kind of away from your opponent to force that like the normally the way that i see people teach the omoplata is like you said matt you try and sit up and you try and pull yourself on top of your opponent while you're facing them but it's fucking hard to do yeah it's hard to do and you're attacking your opponent while they still have really good base like they're still probably on their knees and again unless you just got the timing completely perfect and they're like flat on their stomach, then yeah, sure, get up and finish them. But most of the time, they're going to make it really hard. They're going to base. They're going to try and stack you. If you just go for a roll and you just basically do a log roll from there, then it forces them to roll. And then you're going to wind up in a much better position. 
And if you still want the Omoplata, like you said, there's at least two ways I'm aware of to re-roll that are going to keep your opponent in a good position for you. Mm -hmm. And once you get on top, you have a lot of submission options there. Definitely check out Clark Gracie, uh, very famous for Omoplata positions. But I will say, you know, that there is one thing to be worried about in terms of getting injured from the Omoplata. Generally, I agree, it's a pretty safe position, but if you are doing it on someone who's quite a bit bigger... Sometimes you throw it down and they will be strong enough to posture out. And yes. they can, if they fall back, you can actually eat the ground pretty yeah. hard. Thank you for bringing this up because I've had that happen to me. I was sparring with this very, very rotund guy. And, rotund. Yeah. <laughs> and he, um, I went for an omoplata and I thought I had it, but I underestimated just how much mass this guy had. And he just got back up and stacked me hard really quick. And like I, my neck crunched and it was not yeah. pleasant. So it is yeah. possible, but that's all the more reason to do that, that role immediately because yeah. then they never get that opportunity. Yeah. And one of the reasons they're able to st- to posture up like that is because your knees are facing the ceiling. And so when that happens, they're, they're able to close their elbow and take away the rotation of the shoulder where you want to create rotation of the shoulder and bring their elbow away from their body. And by doing that, you want to turn your knees to the side. So it actually seems counterintuitive to ter- do the omoplata and look away from your partner, but you actually open their elbow more. So it's harder for them to do things like explode and deadlift you up basically yeah. and drop you back. Although, you know, you know, Jeff Mazzaros, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, I was, I was actually talking to him today at the tournament. He was saying that that's how he hurt his back was he omoplotted oh. a guy who was like 280 or something. And the guy literally just did one of the, you know, because deadlifted him and deadlifted hand, him right? and put him on his like and and sort of fell back and you know you eat all of that because your leg is locked into their shoulder. Yeah, yeah. You've te- you, this is the body tethering thing again, right? When it comes to committed techniques, if your body is entangled onto your opponent t- to the point where you cannot easily disentangle and they still have their base, meaning they can generate force, that's a bad scenario for you because you're going to go flying like a tetherball, right? Or they're going to be able to stack you. And you, I mean, for a beginner, you almost can't even blame them because you're, 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 they don't know, they're, they're right? kicking down on your shoulder yeah. and your arm is feeling very vulnerable. So like, what's your normal reaction is to posture and to try and, you know, move your body yeah. in a way that you can get your arm back yeah. as quickly as you can. And in doing so, sometimes you take the guy for a ride. Yeah. So you do have to be you know, you have to be aware when you're when you're trying to structure your game uh, for, for techniques that you enjoy using and whatnot. Also consider that that game plan can change if you're going against someone who's much bigger than you, yeah. right? And uh, depending on their body type, you might have to modify your style and have different styles for different people just because, you know, certain moves can become more dangerous when you're going against someone who's much bigger or, you know, more aggressive or, or even has... If someone has like really strong grips, yeah, you don't yeah, want to yeah. get caught up in a gripping battle with them. You might want to funnel the game into a different portion where they can't utilize their strong grips. Exactly, exactly. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, so in terms of like takedowns, this is probably something that we should continue discussing. Um, now nah, let's move on. <laughs> this is a jujitsu podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, takedowns are an example of where commitment is important. But on the other hand, they're you know, especially if you're not good at takedowns, there's a lot of risk there. I was reading, I think it was high percentage martial arts that did a study on this. And they were talking about how, like, once you get to blue belt and above, takedowns become very effective. But at like the white belt level where no one knows how to do them properly, if you fail, and you honestly, you probably will, it's going to be a disaster for you. So that is one of the things about takedowns is because they require a lot of commitment, you've got to make sure you you get it right. And I think the mistake a lot of jujitsu people make is they'll like, they'll shoot for a double or a single without setting it up at all. They'll just be like, Oh, there's a leg. I'm going to grab that leg 
but they're not taking into account things like making sure that they've got the uh, weight opponent's weight placement on the right foot. They're not, you know, making sure that that foot is leading at the moment. They're not making sure they've cleared their hands. Like there's a lot of things that make, you know, honestly, like when you're doing a double or a single, doing the double leg is the easiest part of the whole thing. Getting the timing and the setup is way harder, way harder. Yeah. Like uh, Olympic, um, I believe he's a gold medalist, Jordan Burroughs. Do you know who he's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a gold medalist. Right. Um, he is, uh, he's one of the best in the world. And he says, you know, he says that in wrestling speed is really important, but even more important is timing. Because if you have good timing, you appear to be very fast. Right. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's really important in wrestling is it's not necessarily like explosiveness and drive and, and like penetration is really important when it comes to finishing takedowns. But what's even more important is your setup. Like yeah, yeah. Knock, knocking their hands out of the way or off balancing them right as your level changing all these little things, managing the distance properly before you shoot. These are all like things that are pretty much Heart, they're they're almost invisible to the naked eye for someone who is untrained, right? When they're watching a wrestling match, it just looks like a crazy scramble. Yeah. But what's yeah. happening is there's a huge distance battle going on. There's level changing battles, hand fighting battles that you don't even consider, right? So, yeah. And as so, as someone who is not that good at takedowns, this is the battle that I have. Is I I know how to technically do the takedown, but actually getting the timing right and then being willing to follow through with the required commitment is a totally different level of skill required it's like if you you know it takes years it's like the difference between a blue belt and a black belt right like a blue belt technically knows how to do like the double leg properly but you know it takes way way more experience to be able to nail the timing perfectly Mm -hmm. to the point where um, you've actually you're able to get it we talked in prior episodes about how if you want to do something it's you should avoid like trying to do it at all costs and doing it in ways that are actually harder than they need to be. And this is a good example of that. Like trying to just go for a double out of nowhere and then hoping that you can put enough effort into it to finish is not a good strategy. Like I I spar with pretty good wrestlers and if they, despite the fact that they are way better at wrestling and they're way more athletic than me, if they try to shoot a double on me without setting it up properly, they have no chance. They're probably going to get choked out, but when they time it right, then I have no chance. And that's the way that it should be if you want to get a takedown, right? You're not trying to force a takedown through sheer effort. You're trying to create the circumstances where a takedown is easy and almost inevitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, Matt, you you do a lot more stand-up than I do when it comes to, <laughs> maybe not that much, but what are, what are your thoughts on like general strategies for creating a situation where a takedown is, is likely to happen because i think the main mistake people have is they just like they just go for the double before they've actually started to set it up properly i mean it's it's kind of apples and oranges if we're talking about shots versus throws mm-hmm. um i'm by no means a master of either like i can i can do throws in practice but actually making them work live sparring is not it's hard. something it's not one of my go-tos right and we talk about commitment it's like I, for me, it's just safer to get to my guard or to go for a shot rather than to go for a throw. Not that the throw can't work. It's just that I'm not at the point where I feel like I'm confident enough to make that happen. Um, So this kind of ties into what we talked about earlier, which is like, you have to be realistic about your level of experience and your skill. No one is going to be great at everything. Now, 
we've talked in the past about how you never want to run away from your weaknesses. Like the way to get better is to dive into and train your weaknesses. But if you're in the middle of a serious match and you need to win right then and there, then that is maybe not the time to work on your weaknesses, right? At that yeah. point, you want to craft a game plan around the things where you feel confident and you feel like you're not in a situation where you're overcommitting based on experience. Like I know, for example, if I'm if I'm sparring with someone and my goal is not necessarily to learn that day, but I want to win, I'm not going to go for like a Seowanagi because I know I suck at it. I know I don't have the timing. I've got all sorts of like crazy guard pulls and sweeps that I know I can do. And that's what I'm going to pull because I know that I'm more comfortable committing to those based on the level of skill that I have there. Mm-hmm. Sanagi is one of the only throws I actually do feel comfortable doing. Interesting. But even still in a competition, very rarely am I going to go for Sanagi's. I have hit a few in my career, but it's just like, it's a lot of commitment for honestly not a, a lot of rewards. So. Well, that's again, kind of, I think the, the focus of this episode, right? It's, yeah. and of course this is not, not, not saying anything bad about the Sanagi, but it's like, you've got to know the sport that you're playing. If you're Playing judo, then yeah, the seonagi is one of the best weapons that you have, actually. But in the jujitsu context, you have to analyze the risk versus reward. The risk is very, very high. <laughs> um, the reward is two points, which is ultimately not a tremendous benefit. I mean, you could pull and sweep. Yeah, you could you could pull and sweep, which is a much less committed technique from you because the odds of something going terribly wrong are, are much, much lower. But you would look badass. You would look amazing. Yeah. I mean, you'd be on a highlight reel forever. But then again, I did you ever see that highlight reel of um, the, the, the Seowanagi fail where a guy got sailed and he basically just got planted right on his head? Like, <laughs> oh, man. I've seen a few of those. Yeah. They're pretty brutal. Yeah. Um, so you could you could wind up being on a highlight yeah. reel in the wrong direction, too. But definitely, uh, in terms of like, to, to get back to your question, Steve, about like, what is required to make a shot work, or mm-hmm. to, you know, a single or a double, uh, the main things I think are like stance is really important to have a good stance that can move around and you can sort of dominate the, the, uh, the level changing. So by that, I mean, basically always keeping your eyes below your partner's eyes and then being able to mix up the level changes and keep them guessing. Mm-hmm. And then, I'm, you know, I think the next few things that would come down to would be, obviously, you got to coordinate your lead leg versus the leg that you want from them, depending on the type of shot you're going for. You got to get in close enough. Uh, one, one thing that I actually, there's a guy named Kyle Dake, who's a really good uh, wrestler from the States. And he basically says, you know, he doesn't even, he doesn't even shoot or, or even extend his hands until his head touches the other guy's head. Mm-hmm. This is totally new for me because I, you know, I, I sort of started wrestling and I, it would be a lot of collar tying and grabbing your partner's head and, and extending your arms and basically leaving your limbs out as levers. When what he does is he stays lower than his, his, his opponent and then he tries to get his head close enough to touch their head. And then from there, he'll start hand fighting. Interesting. Right? So it's interesting because if you don't, if you don't extend your hands, then it's very hard for your partner to use his hands to yeah, expose yeah. your levers. Right. So, so he's getting in really close with his head position before he even starts grappling. And then from there, the grip fighting begins. Right. And then the grip fighting is just a series of, you know, dominating either a, a two on one or, or, you know, a one on one or whatever, and then redirecting a lever so you can get a dominant angle. And then from there, hopefully you're, you're already level changing and shooting because if you wait, then your timing is going to be off. Yeah. And that's why commitment is so important during standup, right? You normally have a very brief window where you've cultivated the situation where a takedown is likely to happen. And if you don't move during that window without hesitation, 
you're just not going to get. I mean, on the ground, you have a bit more flexibility in this manner because you can kind of play jujitsu like a boa constrictor, right? You can basically take away movement and gradually just strangle your opponent and slow them down. So those split second windows, I mean, they, they happen, of course, but you, it's more forgiving, I find, when you're on the ground. Whereas when you're both standing up, you both have full movement. Yeah. So yeah, sometimes you know, you, you've just got one second and you need to really make it count. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. What are your thoughts on the more dominant positions like side control, neon belly, mount, back mount? I mean, a challenge, like I I think you probably can relate to this. Sometimes some people are really, really, really hard to sweep just because they have really good base. But if they manage to like get mount or back mount on you, it's easier to reverse them. I I find this quite often sometimes where some guys are incredibly good at not getting swept when you're playing guard. But Mm -hmm. If you manage, if they do actually manage to pass, then I can wind up on top almost immediately because for some reason, when they've gone to those better positions, they just can't hold it. Yeah. Like they don't understand how to properly immobilize your body or how to base out. Or they, you know, they, they, the thing about a position like mount or back mount is you're tethered to the person, right? So if you don't know how to play that position, it's pretty easy to sweep the air to reverse against the person or just turn around and face them. Yeah. So, so here's, here's my whole thing. And this, this is something that um, I've had talks with my students about because we'll be target sparring and, you know, we'll, we'll set a scenario where maybe someone's, uh, you know, we're, maybe we're sparring rear mount, right? And, and the, the situation is the guy on the back is ahead by two points, okay? And the person who has their back taken has to uh, get those two points back before a certain amount of time is done, Right. So what happens sometimes in in these training sessions is the student who has their back taken will fight and struggle to spin back into guard. So yes, they do escape the rear mount, but now they're on top in their opponent's guard Mm -hmm. and the only way they can score is a pass. And when the clock is ticking and the guy who's in closed guard is still ahead on points, his incentive is not to necessarily submit or sweep. His incentive is to hold you there and frustrate you. So now it's you versus the clock, right? Mm-hmm. So, so yes, it is, it is a valuable skill to be able to like escape rear mount and spin and come up into mount, uh, sorry, come up into guard. But at and that point, you're probably down on points. And, exactly. Yeah. Or, and it is a, it is a valuable skill. Like when you're mounted to be able to mm-hmm. do a good oompa sweep and get on top. But each time you do those under, under certain rule sets, like the IBJJF rule set, you're, you're actually training yourself to not get points. Yeah, yeah, because, makes sense. Because the only way to score a point now is to pass. Mm-hmm. And when you're stuck in the closed guard, it's like, that's not where you want to be. Plus, all you needed to do was like regard to a deep half first, then come up on top. Yeah, right? And then sense. you get points. So it's not like one way it's not like both ways are sorry one way is wrong the context matters if the context matters if our goal is to score and get to the next match yeah yeah so this is that's a really good point so 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 if you don't train under the rule set or or you don't think about the rules or your coach isn't talking about the rules or the points and you plan on competing or you have a lot of competitors in your school then you're kind of doing yourself, uh, your coach is doing you a bit of a disservice. It, that's why in the last episode we talked about like, I really recommend that if you're a coach or a gym owner and you want to have a competition team, you should really start thinking about doing at least one class a week where you talk about point study and, and rules theory and all these things like this, because it's so easy mid-match if you're not training yourself to, to identify those points where you can score, 
Um, it's so easy to just act on your gut and be like, yeah, I got to get out, got to get out. Okay, I'm back on top. I, I'm, I'm good. I won. But really, you didn't win. If you're behind on points, you're, you're actually in a worse position now yeah, because yeah. You're, you're not in a scoring position. You have to yeah. pass. And most people will always say it's easier to sweep than to pass in jiu-jitsu, at least yeah. at the higher levels. That, that actually is a really, really good point. So, yeah, I mean, I guess the context matters, right? If you've got five minutes to work and your opponent gets your back, then it's, yeah, it might be okay to just spin around into them. But if you actually need to, you know, if you need to actually score on points, then it might be better to try to get into a guard situation first. That's, yeah. a, that's a really clever approach. And then, and then on the flip side, if it's like, let's say it's EBI overtime. And the guy's on your back. It, and, you know, it doesn't even matter if you spin into mount, which I don't agree with. Like, the, if, if, you're, if you have your back taken and you spin around and your partner gets on top and mounts you, technically, it's over in EBI rules. But in my gym, we practice to get to guard. Like yeah, you yeah, have to yeah. get your guard back before it's over. But in, that would be a context where if someone's on your back, it really doesn't matter if you get a guard. As long as you spin and even come up into the close guard, that then the time stops. So depending on the rule set that you're preparing for, it might be more appropriate to just spin around and escape, or or it might be certainly more appropriate to re-guard first so you get a scoring position and then sweep from there, right? And I yeah. think deep half is one of those, like, that's a really good application of deep half is when you're in a bad position, like, say, rear mount or mount, and then you can use a deep half position to start getting underneath your partner lock up a guard so that you can you're in a scoring position and then from there rally to get back on top and claim points yeah that makes a lot of sense cool cool i mean uh, i guess another thing on on that topic is i i find and maybe you tell me if you're wrong with more junior people they usually and by junior i don't mean like white belts but even up until like purple belt or sometimes even brown Usually most people really, really love side control um, and they think that's just like the greatest position, but and, and I'm all, one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and I love side control. But often I find a lot of the time people don't really develop a, a full, like, like they don't fully dive into mm-hmm. going for mounts and even going for back mounts until they get more advanced. Yeah. And, and my theory on this is because side control requires less commitment. Like it's, e- it's easy to be on top inside control and mm-hmm. basically ride your opponent. And the worst thing that's going to happen in most cases is they regard. Yeah. Um, whereas from mount or from back mount, like if you lose those positions, you're probably going to wind up on the bottom, right? So there's a higher level of commitment to those positions, which means you got to be good at them. And I, I think from, at least from my own personal experience, when I was uh, more junior, you know, I remember even being at like purple belt level, I thought like side control was like the position uh, just because like, it's very hard for someone to get out of that. But once you get to a high enough level, you realize, man, guys are good at escaping that and your attack options are limited. Yeah. And once you get really good at actually like holding mount or holding back mount, you develop a much greater appreciation for those games. No, I definitely agree with that. And I think that um, like spending a good amount of time target sparring those positions like rear mount and full mount and understanding how rotational control works, that's mm-hmm. kind of that's one of the biggest things for me that helped me with my uh, rear mount retention is like understanding, you know, how to use Kimura control properly, how to control the corners of somebody's body, um, the, the rotational control aspect. And then uh, again, like going through a series of predictable responses, when, you know, when my partner bails off to the strong side, how am I going to re, how am I going to reestablish my rear mount if I have a Kimura control or a seatbelt control or a motorcycle control? And then, you know, weak side or strong side, having these, you know, contingency plans is really important when you're playing 
those types of positions. If you just go in and try and be a backpack and hold yeah. on for dear life, you're probably going to fall off, right? Yeah, Without yeah. any con conceptual uh, uh, context behind it. Well, that, that's a good point because even if you're really good at holding mount or holding back mount, you're probably not going to be able to hold it always. Like those positions are escapable. So I think that so much of having a good mount game or a good back mount game involves knowing how to get the, the cart back on the track when your opponent starts trying to escape. Like how do you, how do you either transition to a, another dominant position or how do you recover and get back to a strong version of the position that you were in? I, I find, and I mean, maybe this is just me, but I find that for me, this is more of a problem with back mount. I find that if I get mount on someone, I can usually hold it pretty well, but back mount, I find you've got to have a, a pretty good series of predictable responses queued up if you want to hold that position because it is an escapable position. Yeah. And in terms of commit, like we could also talk about uh, like th such things like overcommitment. Like if I yeah, go yeah, for, yeah. if I'm standing with you and I enter for a giant hurrah and I throw you and I land on you, but then I can't secure the top position and I end up on bottom position it's not ideal, right? So like a lot of judo throws, a lot of judo, judo fighters will train themselves. Once they do a big throw, they'll try and roll the, their back over top of their partner to ensure that their shoulders hit the mat. The only problem with this is that in jujitsu, a lot of the time you roll over them and you end up on the bottom, right? So um, oddly enough, if you do a giant harayo gauche and then you throw your partner and they immediately get on top. Even if you end up in side control, do you know what the score would be? So let me just understand. So someone tries to harai me, but they do it like a sacrifice throw. They basically flop over onto the bottom. So the other person... They throw you. So they throw me, but with full rotational momentum. And I wind up on top in side control. Yeah. What would the score be? I would guess that I it would be 2 nothing me. And the reason why I would guess that is because I tech their takedown didn't count because they didn't stabilize. There was no guard pass. Um, when I, I mean, I do get up, there's no guard pass. So I'm assuming I don't get points for the guard pass, but I would assume that I would get points for the takedown. So I would assume it would be two nothing, but I might be wrong. So the way that they would score that is because you didn't initiate the takedown, you don't get a score. So what would happen is I would get an advantage ah, and you would okay. get nothing. Got it. Even though I end up on bottom side control. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. It's kind of weird, right? Because yeah. so, so. I mean, I kind of appreciate that though, because like, yeah, the result was bad for you, but you didn't really demonstrate a tremendous amount of technique. If you, you basically got thrown so hard that you did a full like rotation and wound up on top. Well, that's not necessarily true. Like I could have done a beautiful harai to you. Yeah. And, and, and you could have gone right flying through the air. I throw you right on the ground, but then it was just too much spin. I committed to the, to the rotation mm -hmm. too much. And then you come up on top and side control, but there was no guard pass for you. And there was no takedown for you, technically. It was my takedown that initiated the, the throw. And I almost secured it, but I, then I fell over. So yeah, technically, yeah. I would have gotten advantage for almost getting the takedown, and then you would have got nothing. So you could almost argue it two ways. You could argue it like, well, I should get something for being on top, right? Because like, yeah, yeah. essentially, there was an exchange, and I, you got the better of the exchange. But because I initiated it, and I did it, and then I overcommitted you know, it's, it's, so it's kind of like, I can see it from both sides. Yeah. Yeah. But, makes sense. But this is important to understand if you're a competitor, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, it makes a world of difference, right? Because yeah. if you're on the bottom and you regard, now you're in a position to sweep again. Yeah. Yeah. And right? you're already ahead on with one advantage, yeah. right?
So if I, let's, okay, so let's take it even further down the rabbit hole. If this happened to me, and now I'm on top in side control, and my partner just got an advantage for throwing me, but then I get on top, what, what could I do? I can't pass his guard, right? Because he's already in side control. But what I could do is I could rack up a quick two points by getting a neon belly. <laughs> we, that's what we talked right? about in the last episode. I, I kind of think that like neon belly spam is kind of cheap. That's one of the reasons I think maybe they need to depoint that move. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I can appreciate it because uh, it is a pretty dominant position. You know what I mean? Especially like in the street situation, it's pretty dominant as well. Oh, yeah. But I, I'm just um, saying that like I don't think it's so much more dominant than side control. That Now, now granted, we're kind of assuming that we live in – we talked about this in the last episode. But, you know, in, in my ideal scoring situation, you would get points for side control, not for passing. Uh, but, yeah, given the way that the rules are currently structured where you don't get points for side control, I can see it making sense that you would get points for neon belly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if there was if, – if, if I did a hurrah to you and then we – there was sort of a scramble on the ground – where uh, you, where I throw you and then you get on top and I sort of have a guard momentarily, but then you get around my guard, then you would get guard passing. Points. Depending on how, like, I, I'm presuming you would have had to have retained that guard for like at least three seconds no, or something. not even really. Really? I just need to establish frames and have my legs in front of you because that's a guard. And then if you can get past... So you don't need to settle the position. It's not like when you like hold a position, you need to hold it for long enough to get the points. Just I don't need to establish a guard for three seconds for you to... uh, I I don't need that to to be considered a guard. Interesting. So even if... if, So (laughs) how how can we even go down further? If if I threw you and then you happen to uh, end up on top, if you let me regard momentarily enough so that the ref thinks that I have a guard and then you pass, you could get a quick three. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So like identifying these situations where you can score, um, and assuming the referee knows how to do their job properly, which let's be honest is not every time you can be a way more effective competitor just by learning how to play the points rather than just like, just going in and banging basically. You yeah. know what I mean? Which well, is what I did for the majority of my competition. Well, that's career. a good example of where if you tone down the commitment, sometimes you can actually play the game to your advantage. I, I mean, we've talked in the past about the whole strategy of like kind of half passing where you you know you could pass, but you slow it down a bit to make your opponent burn energy. Yeah. You can also use that strategy to force a regard attempt. And as long as you don't let them actually lock the guard, you can create point situations you wouldn't otherwise have. Well, exactly. And one of those situations would be like, let's go back to neon belly. So if I have a neon belly on you, um, if I keep transitioning neon belly from side to side i don't get i don't rack up two points every time I. but if you drop back down to side control no no so here's the rule if i go to neon belly on you i get my two if i drop back into side control and then pop back up to neon belly i don't get another two what constitutes my ability to get points is you need to I have initiate, to take action, right? Yeah. You need to initiate the guard retention movement, which so, is naturally going yeah. to happen. So you wait for me to hip escape and then you pop up to neon belly or something. Exactly. So I put you in neon belly, you start getting on your side, framing, hip escaping, creating a, a, a momentarily a momentary frame. So you have now established the defensive movement. So now from here, if I pop back up to neon belly again. I'm going to get guard pass points and I'm going to get the neon belly. It's like farming points. It's like people who go into like online video games it's like and they just duping. farm gold. Yeah, you're duping. It's like you're duping. <laughs> <laughs> Basically you are like, yeah. and if you're, and if you know, if you're, if you're that present and you understand how to do that, 
Um, and you can kind of play the guy's reactions, right? Again, this is a predictable reaction on a different level. Yeah, right? yeah. This is like a very much uh, you're, you're a using pre- scale, right? Yeah, you're using predictable responses to basically create point scenarios. To do points. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's super valuable though. Like if you're, if you're a competitor, like in the matter of like 20 seconds, you could be up like 15 points. If, if you are, are constantly staying ahead and you're, and then simultaneously your opponent is getting exhausted. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You're really like, I think in this case, I mean, it, we, we joke about duping points and, you know, like spamming points, but it actually is a situation where I think it is right for you to be getting extra points because you are getting a measurable advantage over it. Even though the position is not really advancing, mm-hmm. you're forcing your opponent to burn through vast energy reserves with little expense to yourself. Yeah. Like, I think that's worth a few extra points. Yeah. And you can always mount too, right? Like, like one of my favorites would be like, uh, like a, <clears throat> like a neon belly. Then they regard, then you go, and then you let, you know, you let them regard, then you go neon belly again, and then you mount. Yeah. yeah so yeah. you get three points plus two for the neon belly, plus four for the mount. So that's what, uh, that's a nine point score. It can happen in seconds, right? If you, if you get nine points scored on you, against you in, in a high level match, you're, you're basically lost. Yeah, unless you pull right? like a Hail Mary submission yeah. out of somewhere, that's gonna be a, a hard mountain to climb. Yeah, like this has happened to me before um, in a match where I got really outscored and the whole time I was just like, all I was thinking, I was getting tuned by this guy. I was just thinking about, okay, get your guard back. He mounted me. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get my, I'm going to get my like deep half. I'm going to start working from there. I got, I trapped his leg and he basically let me trap his leg. He let me regard and then he would just mount yeah. me again and start grinding me down. And I'd be like, I'd have to work so hard just to get that leg back in. And then he would pass again and mount me again. So every time he, he passes and mounts me, he gets seven points. Yeah. You do that enough times, it's like pretty pretty soon the scoreboard we're in we're in double digits and beyond. Right? That's so, that's great. It's like you know he's like dangling a carrot in front of you. I mean that's a yeah a great example of rather than overcommitting and going right to the finish line, you're yeah. slowing down and giving the other guy enough opportunities to open up more point scenarios yeah. for you so you can rack up the score. Yeah, like that's a high level of awareness in a match that only like a really experienced competitor can do. But man, like if you can pass that off to your students and they learn to sort of use these rules, I want to say it's it's cheating the system, but it's actually just playing the rules, right? If you know how to play those rules, man, you can really put the pressure on your opponent and make them, they're going to be forced to make mistakes, right? Like essentially the only option you give them is to submit you. Yeah. yeah. If you run the score up in the double digits, you got a nice lead where you can just chill now. And now it's them versus the clock. Yeah. And and I don't even think it's a situation where you're really like exploiting the system, because I think this is a situation where granting you extra points for your behavior is completely justifiable. Like you are forcing your opponent to burn through massive energy reserves just to stay alive. Like that's definitely worth something. Mm -hmm. Like now, now that I've like, I feel like I've, uh, I've, I've got a lot of experience both just in jujitsu and in competition and in life and, and in life (laughs) and being awesome. Uh, like one of my biggest passions right now is like trying to identify those little scenarios that happen in every match, you know, and like exploiting those situations. It's that's now my new challenge when I compete is like, Okay, I want to make I want to find those situations where I can score. If I get into a good position, I want to see how I can like use the points against my my opponent. Not necessarily just like submit them, yeah. You know, or yeah. not. I, I, it's not like I want to hit this technique or that technique. I want to see if I can use the points to frustrate them, use the clock to like you know make them really pissed off. That makes then, sense. I mean, win I'll, that way. That that's like a new challenge for me as a competitor. Yeah, and I'll I'll tell you this as a guy who doesn't compete. 
that kind of stuff is frustrating as hell, even just when points aren't on the line and you're just sparring for fun, right? I mean, if if someone passes and mounts me, I'm not overly concerned. I, I have enough faith in my skill that I know I'm probably going to get out. But if someone basically just like gradually mauls me and they give you, you know, you have just a glimmer of hope and then they take it away and yeah. they do that over and over again. That's the kind of I mean, stuff that starts to break you mentally, especially at a high level. Yeah. That's when like, like most of the time in the gym, I don't get like flat out exhausted rolling. Um, but like, if you go to a high level training environment, like you go to a Cobrinha school or like art of jujitsu or, you know, one of the like top gyms in the world where everyone is really good. You find that like you constantly are under attack. Like, yeah, yeah. like when Oliver was here a few weeks ago, when I rolled with him, he just like wore me out because every roll he's on me, his pressure is just like, it's not like something I'm used to. So since I'm always under pressure, I'm always getting more exhausted. That's a really good point because it is something that I, I'm just realizing now that you mention it, which is that, you know, when, when you're relatively inexperienced, being on like bottom side control or bottom mount is exhausting. But once you get experienced, it's not exhausting anymore. You're so comfortable there that it's just a position you play. So even if I've got like some giant walrus on top of me in side control, I still know I can conserve my energy and survive. So you, at a high level, you've got to do a lot more than just hold a dominant position. You have to start prodding reactions out of your opponent to get them to burn energy and, and to break them psychologically. Just holding the position is not going to be enough. There has to be a a degree of psychological warfare involved as well. And I think, you know, this is actually a really interesting discussion that, I mean, we could actually talk a lot longer about this. I didn't really expect it to come up in, in this conversation, but this is a really interesting example of using strategy to win, right? Like, and not, not even the kind of things that people generally think about when they think str strategy, but just little things to cultivate success just here and there. And these kinds of things don't just apply to jujitsu. Like you can use this kind of strategy elsewhere in life. I mean, like, for example, if at work you really want to get promoted, but the mistake a lot of people make is they think that just like just doing the right thing is going to be enough. But a good part of that, if you really want to like to get ahead, you kind of have to cultivate situations where other people want you to get promoted and to move ahead. And, and you it, literally have to play the game. You quote. have to play the game. And <laughs> I, I, I mean, everyone thinks that when you say this, it's like some like freaking like psycho sociopathic, like Game of Thrones thing. But it's like, no, not really. You just under, have to understand human psychology. You have to understand what other people really want to see in you. And, you know, this is a great example of how there are just a few little triggers you can do that will create certain behaviors in opponents that you can exploit and will also benefit you from a rules perspective. So, yeah, you know that if you go to neon belly or, or a mount or whatever, you know, your opponent's reaction is going to be to get their guard back. You can pretty safely rely on that, right? If you go to a neon belly and they don't respond, just keep attacking. Go yeah, to mount yeah. now. Now isolate their arm. They're just going to lie there. Okay, I'm just going to keep isolating your arm or your head and arm or whatever. You know they're going to create movement. You know they're going to uh, create a defensive strategy. So why not play to that, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly goes right back to our predictable responses discussion. Yeah, awesome. I mean, I feel, I feel like probably this episode is going to be super helpful for a lot of people. We might even need to expand on it at some point. Um, yeah, maybe JJF tutorial videos, guys. Even if you're not a huge fan of IBJJF, I totally understand that. But you will learn so much about jujitsu and so much about the the point system just by watching these short, like five minute videos. Is They're this really like well their done. official channel, or yeah, is... yeah IBJJF? I, I don't know if it's the IBJJF channel on YouTube or IBJJF tutorials, but it's like a it's like a section where it's got like ten videos and it's got 
they discuss their sweeps, they discuss uh, takedowns, they discuss penalties and things like this. The foul one is actually really funny too because they have two guys reenacting fouls. So the guys like <laughs> pretending to like celebrate and stuff, and then the referee gives them penalties and stuff. It's pretty funny. But uh, yeah, no, really, really good, quick videos, easy to understand. Because for me, if I if I read like a rule book for 20 minutes, I'm not going to retain a lot of that information. It's just too much text for my brain to look at. But if I can visually picture and um, picture these two guys grappling and I can recognize the scenario and then it tells me, OK, this is not worth two points. This is worth an advantage or whatever. I find my brain absorbs it a lot more. I'm much more of a visual learner. So, yeah, really good for, for people who learn like that. Awesome. So check it out. Anything else you wanted to add, Matt, or should we wrap it up? I don't know. How far in are we? We're pretty, we're like over an hour, man. Really? Yeah, I know. Time flies, huh? We got any questions or anything like that? Sure do. I mean, first, maybe we can just do a quick recap of what we talked about today. Um, Committed techniques. Generally, this is like understanding the return on investment for the moves you do. Always good to think about this. Understand uh, what the benefits are of every technique and also what the risk is to yourself, both in terms of losing in the match and also physical damage. Yeah, like just like in life, you should always be asking yourself, do the ends justify the means, right? If you're yeah. if you're getting into a fight with your partner or whatever, and, and you don't really, and you think about what you're trying to get out of this argument, yeah. it's like, is this worth it? Is it, you really got to pick your battles, whether you're in jujitsu or you know you're with your spouse or at work with your bosses. Yeah, yeah. you got to pick your battles, right? So do the ends justify the means? Exactly, exactly. Uh, we talked about predictable responses, such a critical topic in terms of high level jujitsu. You need to have an understanding of what your opponent is likely to do because. That is so important to successfully executing moves uh, and also in terms of building your game plan. If you want to build a funnel, you need to understand the predictable responses about how to get your opponent into the positions that you expect. We talked about overwhelming force, meaning if you're trying to attack like an arm or a leg, don't do it with just your arms. Your arms are there to hold the limb in place. That's it. The power comes from your core, your, your hips, and from your legs. So My advice is, as soon as you do latch onto an arm or a leg, immediately you want to straighten your spine and drive your hips into your opponent. That's almost always a good strategy for an arm or a leg lock. And we talked about body tethering. Um, this is a big part of understanding if your your technique is requires a significant degree of commitment. If you are latched onto your opponent like a backpack and you cannot easily disentangle from them, and they still have the ability to generate base, then you may have a big problem. <laughs> you know, probably the the most quintessential example is trying to triangle someone when they still have posture, and then they could just pick you up. Speaking of backpacks, just ordered a brand new Datsusara backpack. Nice. A little bit off topic, but. Yeah, so sorry. They make the best bags. Do they? I think so. I'll have to give it a go. My sponsor, Brett from BC Kimono, is probably pissed off at me right now, but you don't make bags, Brett. So, yeah. Until you do, Datsusara is my brand. Don't <laughs> 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 no, worry, he doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you might be surprised. Huh? Guess we'll find out. Okay, so we did get a question, uh, kind of actually similar to the one we did last week. So, here it is. Today in class, we were talking about cutting the body in half by severing the knee-elbow connection while working on a leg drag into knee-on-belly type drill, and we got to active drilling, and I realized that in practice, I always go to north-south when an opponent shrimps into me from knee-on-belly. Awesome. Awesome. Great position. Yeah. And also, this this is clearly a guy who pays attention to this podcast. He's got all the terminology right. So my partner was struggling to do much once I got there, and it occurred to me that I'm not sure how posture structure base works from the north-south position outside 
of inside channel control from the top. Could from you, the top, for the top person. Yeah, yeah. Could you break down some concepts on braking alignment and, and lever control from the bottom of north-south? So, interesting. So, so you're, from the guy from the bottom? So, yeah, he says from the bottom. So, I guess he's asking, like, if you're on the bottom from north-south, how do you break your opponent's alignment? Um, I would start off by break saying... the top person's alignment? Yeah, yeah. I, I would start off here by saying that, like, it is possible to minimize the impact of the person on top uh, in terms of their alignment, but very hard to really break it, especially from that position. So we're talking about escapes essentially from north-south. Or, or at least survival, it sounds like. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when you're in that position on, I mean, north-south is a damaging, damaging position. Like you you don't really have your legs available unless you're like a monkey. And I know some guys can, can do this, but yeah. most people can only really like fight with their hands when they're pinned in north-south. So your focus needs to be less on breaking your opponent's alignment and more on preserving your own. Um, of course, when you're in north-south, the most important thing is not letting your head get isolated because that's in terms of predictable responses, that's probably going to be central to whatever your opponent is trying to do. But there are also a lot of funky arm attacks that you can do. So you want to keep your, your head guarded. You don't want to let your opponent get around your neck. And that generally means you need to have your head, your hands tucked in. If you're sitting on the bottom and like you're, the guy on top is squishing you from north-south, as long as you don't have your neck captured you're probably like your alignment is not totally screwed. Um, you, you're, it's a, a survivable situation. Like you still have base because your feet are totally free to move however you want. Your posture and your structure are inhibited because your opponent, just by virtue of being on top of your, your head uh, and your, your arms, you're not going to be able to get a lot of movement going out of them. But you're also, you don't have anything really isolated. It's when your opponent starts pulling your arm free or pulling your neck that you have to worry. So my suggestion is try to avoid a situation where you're from the bottom, you're going for like a body lock on the guy on top because that leaves your arms exposed. The most yeah, important... Don't try and grab him. Yeah, yeah, which is something that, that does happen a lot. Um, and also don't try to, uh, or don't do anything that would leave your neck exposed. That is the biggest threat. In terms of how I usually get out of this position when I'm the guy on the bottom, um, I, again, I bring my hands up kind of as like a, to create like a defensive shell around my neck so that the guy can't wrap around it and go for a north-south choke. I like to kind of use my arms as frames and I kind of sort of like, I don't know if I'd call it really a hip escape, but I kind of try to like sh shrimp downwards in forward, a way. Or forward shrimp. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it'd be like a forward shrimp. Um, but create space. Not, not just one forward shrimp, though I'm constantly moving kind of back and forth and yeah. I'm just trying to create space on both sides. Uh, the important thing though is while you're doing this, you've got to keep your elbows in pretty tight to your body because if you extend your arms out, there's all sorts of arm locks that can happen from there. So it's a tricky position, honestly. It's one of the hardest positions in my experience to get out of. But the important thing is to stay calm because at least you have a pretty good understanding of what the guy on top is going to do. His attack options are somewhat limited. So as long as you defend against those and keep your own alignment, you should eventually be okay. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we could do a whole episode on this topic. You probably, this probably is, should. I love the north-south position just like after finishing a pass, it's a great position to go to because it, it almost completely clears your opponent's legs. Yeah, it, it's maybe um, like the single hardest position to escape, in my opinion. It's it's really good. Um, one, one of the things that I would do is I would think, okay, what does the person on the top want to have a successful north-south? So one of the things that I've added recently, uh, thanks to Rob Bernacki, was he basically, like, I was putting my head to the side, um, basically next to their hip. 
uh, for the, to hold the North South, but he was saying basically put your head like over their junk. And as, 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 uh, as much as that's going to look like fellatio, <laughs> it, it helps because you're going to get these really bendy, flexible guys that are able to fully invert and come up on your back. Yeah, that, that does happen. You know, and, and a lot of these guys, especially like coming out of the 10th planet camp, that's like one of their go-to escapes from bottom North South is if you give them the position with their hips and you're not blocking it with your head, then they're going to be able to come up and and uh, and and get your back by putting their hooks in. So this is a very real threat. So now when I'm in top position, I always try and keep my head hovering over the groin. Let's say, <laughs> okay. Another thing is there's a uh, reason they call it the barbecue position, right? Yeah. <laughs> you got your meat on the other guy's grill. That's right. <laughs> um, uh, and another thing is, I if I'm holding north south, I know that I want to have my shoulder line below my partner's hips. If I can do that, then I can prevent them from reconnecting their knees and their elbows, right? So if I'm on top, I'm always going to keep my upper body relatively low, keep my head low and keep my shoulders low. If you're on bottom, you need to find ways to to get your knees back to your elbows, right? Now, if if the person on top has isolated my arms in like a an inside channel position, that's going to be pretty mm-hmm. hard for me to do. But I, I can create movement by, like you said, forward shrimping is a great option. Um, another great option is to, there's actually a Lachlan Giles video on YouTube where he literally will take his thigh and he'll use it to basically create a sideways club on it, on the person's head on top. And what this does is it momentarily moves their head out of position. So now they can create movement. Um, it's kind of a cool move, kind of hard to talk about, uh, to go to YouTube and type Lachlan Giles, uh, North South escape. He shows it really well. And then the last thing I would talk about is like you said, you mentioned keeping your alignment on the bottom. Uh, with your limbs just remember that every time you turn up on one side like if you get on your shoulder and start escaping you will create back exposure and you will also isolate one of your limbs Mm -hmm. right so anytime your back leaves the mat one of your arms will be more available than the other and your back will be exposed so a lot of the time when i defend north south i actually try and keep my back and head on the mat yeah yeah me too and i try to until i'm ready to go yeah and like i said i try or like you said steve the forward shrimping and uh moving their head around with your legs and um and bringing your knees in uh below his shoulders so i try and get my knees inside the armpits actually like my partner's armpits that's one of my favorite places to put it you're you're talking about more like a traditional like i think in judo they call it like a four corners pin where you're basically in like 69 on top of the guy usually when i when i was providing my example i'm thinking more of like when the guy's lower down and he's like in kind of like north south choke position okay no that's slightly different yeah Yeah. if, if that's the case then you probably have a lot more mobility with your hips if that's if if you're stuck in a north south choke position then your hips really aren't impeded in any way because your partner is so heavy on your head yeah yeah to clarify the reason i was saying there was still base was because i was envisioning like you're going for a north the guy on top is like in north south position but if the guy is like four corners pinning you man it is hard to get out of that you don't really have a lot of options um and it it also makes it hard to prevent your opponent from separating your your arms from the rest of your body because now they can use their knees right so it's Mm -hmm. it's a tricky one yeah anyways check out that lachlan giles video for that north south escape and uh yeah, it's pretty lot to, lot to unpack there, and it's pretty difficult to visualize for, for I'm sure some of you, but very different position, just holding north south and a north south choke. Yeah, but generally speaking, as a a general guideline, when you are in a far inferior position like that, your focus should be more on preserving your own alignment versus trying to to break your opponent's. Mm-hmm. Now, 
eventually you can sometimes compromise your opponent's alignment from these bad positions, but you're going to be very limited in terms of how you can do it. And you only want to do that after you're certain that you've dealt with your own alignment. It's like, you know, you got to like, got to make your own bed before you start worrying about someone else's, right? It's the same thing here. Prioritize your own alignment before you start worrying about trying to break what your other guy's doing. Mm-hmm. Cool. Awesome. Well, I, th- I think that was an awesome chat, uh, just in terms of learning more about our system. If you go to bjjmentalmodels.com, you can see the whole database of the concepts that we talk about here. Uh, you can also get in touch with us there. If you go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store, you can buy our awesome t-shirts and our awesome gi patches. We definitely appreciate everyone who helps support the show. If you go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join, you can sign up for our mailing list where we will consensually spam you with more information about jujitsu. And of course, you can always follow us on Facebook and Instagram where we post just reams of useless information, uh, mostly pictures of Matt beating up his students, but sometimes there's very inspiring quotes, so I highly recommend it. <laughs> nice. Anything else you want to plug, Matt? No, I don't. No, no. Okay, write in if you get that reference. I'm sure there's a lot. You know, we're older than we think, man. There's probably a lot of people who will not understand. Probably over 10 years ago that that happened. God, we're old. Just crazy. Anyways, thank you guys. Thank you. Take care.